In the fifth season of this podcast, we'll be exploring some great works of literature that have something to suggest to us about the nature of authenticity. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, authenticity is the quality of being real or true. The Delphic Oracle instructs, Know thyself. The gadfly, Socrates, tells us that the unexamined life is not worth living. To thine own self be true, writes the bard. The hermit of Sils Maria, Nietzsche, counsels us to avoid herd morality and instead to become who you are. Mark Twain offers up the sage advice that if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. And Kurt Cobain tells us in a way that only he can to come as you are. So what is it? What is authenticity? Well, no better place for some answers than to turn to the writers and the poets. This is the wisdom of, and this is episode five, Alice Monroe. Confession time here. I, I don't know if we've said this before, but we are in fact Canadian. I don't, you know, I hope this doesn't cause some sort of exodus of subscribers, you know, people thinking we are more cosmopolitan from New York City or Paris City or London City or something like that. But no, we're Canadian, just like the focus of today's episode, Alice Monroe. So, from the outside, it may seem like her stories are light on plot and that, you know, living in Canada itself maybe can be seen as being light on plot, especially compared to our noisy neighbors to the south. But like almost everything, there's so much more to be found, at least in her stories. Yeah, there's definitely a lot to be found. And we'll get into some of it. And by the way, could you be any more Canadian in that introduction? So first, as usual, a brief summary. So Alice Monroe is, as you mentioned, a Canadian short story writer whose stories convey aspects of Canadian culture and geography. She's seen by many to be one of the greatest short story writers of the last 60 years. She's often compared to the Russian writer Chekhov, She's won numerous awards, including the Nobel Prize in Literature, in 2013. Monroe focuses largely on the particular importance of women's lives. Her stories are female narratives, concentrated mostly on the experiences of women. Not surprisingly, then, in her stories, Monroe often reveals the barriers to women's autonomy and individuality. Uh, I often think of uh, one of the paradoxes of writing, one in which you can use, uh, you know, more complicated style and $20 words, but find your writing becoming 
more limited rather than expanding its meaning, while strangely stripping it all away, going down to the simple, honest phrasings is more difficult, it's rare, and maybe most importantly becomes more open for the reader. So how does Alice Munro create authenticity through the value of simple, honest writing? Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, it's hard not to see authenticity in her writing style. I mean, unlike many writers, her sentences are unadorned, aren't they? And they're without any pretension. She doesn't seem to concern herself with form, but instead with things like um, clarity and veracity and practicality. Actually, in this way, she reminds me a bit of Hemingway in that she shares some of his economy and lucidity of style. But the amazing thing is that she does this all in an extremely intuitive and natural way. In other words, there's an effortlessness to her writing. And on top of this, her sentences are rarely dull, which is pretty incredible considering her language is, well, like I said, unvarnished and to the point. But you know what? To me, it's her accuracy and simple truth-telling that's most important. You know, Camus said that lying is not only saying what isn't true, it's also saying more than is true. In other words, saying too much obscures and misleads. Now, of course, we get this in writers all the time, don't we? But actually, a really good example that comes to my mind here is the writing of some of the postmodernist thinkers. According to many people, um, Noam Chomsky included, their language is just too inflated. Their overuse of insular, opaque jargon results in writing that is, well, at the end of the day, not just incomprehensible, but deceptive and possibly destructive in its effect. Again, among Monroe's virtues is her great clarity and honesty. Actually, she makes one of her characters say, quote, How to keep oneself from lying, I see as the main problem everywhere. End of quote. So, through her writing, we see someone who dares to speak the truth about the world to say the things that most of us are ashamed or afraid to say, or even think. You know, now that I think about it, both Socrates and Epicurus preach the the great importance of clear, concise, and unadorned communication. They preached the importance of, well, telling the truth. And actually, they each had their own reasons for this. For, For Socrates, telling the truth was important because... Well, it was the only way to make headway in a discussion. Over and over again, he stressed that the two participants in a discussion must say what they actually believe. And this makes sense, right? Because, well, for one, if people are insincere and they're not cooperating with one another, then how could this ever be constructive in the sense of leading to greater shared understanding or truth? And, I mean, surely most interviews with news pundits today will attest to this sort of failure, no? But 
Even more importantly, I think Socrates wanted his interlocutors to be sincere because by being this way, it invested their discussion with an existential dimension. Now, what I mean by this is that if someone says what they think is true within an argument, then they themselves are going to be ultimately implicated. No? That's to say, it's not just about truth in the abstract, but about how they live their life that now becomes relevant. This is what made a discussion with Socrates so difficult for so many of his interlocutors. It made them look into themselves, and it forced them to acknowledge not just their logical inconsistencies, but their existential hypocrisy and shortcomings. In fact, it's probably why he was brought to trial and eventually sentenced to death. And like I mentioned, Epicurus also had some interesting reasons for telling the truth. Actually, he called what he practiced um, frankness of speech or open talk. And for Epicurus, this practice was one of the defining features of friendship. Now, why would that be? Well, first of all, if we're too sensitive to voice our grievances, then there'll be no resolution of conflicts, and so our friendships won't flourish. But also for Epicurus, when we lie to our friends, we prevent them from growing and learning. So for him to flatter our friends, to always please them, or to always tell them what they want to hear, betrays a lack of concern for them. Actually, in this way, Epicurus and his followers thought of truth-telling as, well, medicinal or therapeutic, because, well, it ultimately heals characters. You know what? Now that I think about it, the cynics, too, made it a practice to speak directly and critically and even crassly. For them, though, it was a way to cut through all the garbage and expose people's beliefs and values for what they were, misguided and worthless. For them, truth was like a, like a machete. Not surprisingly, Nietzsche was pretty influenced by them, and even called them by his highest term of endearment. He called them free spirits. Anyway, to, to get back to Monroe. So, like I said, chief among her virtues is her great honesty and realism. She doesn't oversimplify human beings and their emotions. She doesn't idealize her characters. She's not sentimental. She understands that at the heart of the truth about the human condition is, well, ambiguity. Monroe understands that there are no simple solutions. She knows that any view that insists on one thing over the others is going to be deficient or telling a half-truth. Actually, in this way, she reminds me again of Camus, who said, Nothing is really true that forces one to exclude. Anyone who's spent any time listening to this podcast knows that we're fans of Dostoevsky, a writer that is famous for 
you know, his deep insight into human psychology and, and the realities that are in there. But he does present it with the, the grandest of grand themes in a way that narratively can sometimes, I don't know, detach the reader from reality. Is there something we can get from Alice Munro, something more authentic in exploring the, the quotidian, the, the everyday? Yeah, there absolutely is. I mean, you're right. Monroe doesn't write about the, the radical or the grandiose. Actually, in many ways, she writes about something far more difficult. She writes about the ordinary. Her subject is, well, as you say, everyday life itself. She doesn't write about exceptional individuals, you know, going on big heroic quests. No, she tells stories about ordinary people whose lives are outwardly small. But here's the thing. Everyday life is no less important for her. Um, a woman coming to terms with her relationship, or the frustration of a middle-aged housewife, is for Monroe just as important as a Greek hero outsmarting a cyclops, or a frustrated sea captain trying to capture a whale, or a deluded man swinging at windmills. Now, surely she's right about this, no? I mean, isn't everybody an outsider in their own way? Everyone encounters obstacles. Everyone feels, from time to time, like they don't fit, and that they need to make a change. Everyone suffers. In other words, we all participate in the same human universals. Love, transience, and death. In this sense, we can all be characters in a story no less interesting or significant than those characters that belong to the stories that make up the literary canon. This is one of Monroe's great insights and achievements. You know, now that I think about it, Monroe's emphasis on the small and on the everyday is instructive on a more general level, too. I mean, apart from just literature. That's to say, why is there everywhere this obsession with, this default to, the big, the macro? Why this focus on quantity? I mean, bigger TV screens, bigger homes, bigger trucks, Bigger highways, bigger skyscrapers. Bigger malls, bigger burgers, bigger blockbusters. Big data, more data, more likes, more this, more that. I mean, and this is remarkable, even the value of life itself is now mostly measured in terms of quantity. That's to say, we seem to think that the longer the life the more the life, the better the life. I mean, think about our modern obsession with health and exercise. Nietzsche might have been right when he said that the last men honor health and they make it their God. Why is this? Well, because we want eternity. We want to live as long as possible. It's all about quantity, not quality. Isn't this a reduction of life to its biological processes? Following Nietzsche, have we become too wary to see that life is much more than just health? 
does Armenia for health emerge as a result of a fear of living, a fear of quality at the expense of quantity? It seems that now health has become the goal itself rather than a means to a life of value. And the problem with this is that in our drive for a sterile infinity, in our pursuit of endless quantity, we risk bleaching out life's narrative and purposiveness. Anyway, in a roundabout way, I guess what I'm saying is, let's not forget the small stuff. It can pack a punch. I mean, after all, a butterfly flapping its wings in New York can cause a hurricane in China. Hybrid strains of rice led to the Green Revolution, which astonishingly might have saved more than a billion lives. And what about the remarkable snowflake, with its unique crystalline form, one marked both by the delicacy of a flower and incredible mathematical precision? You know, the poet Walt Whitman was right. A leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of stars. I think Monroe might agree. I think one of the more prominent, uh, you know, love it or hate it movies of recent memory would have to be No Country for Old Men. And I would place that kind of love-hate idea squarely on the fact that it, it came to an inconclusive ending. It, it, it didn't explain it to us. We didn't get any kind of really adequate conclusion to any kind of standard narrative. Do you find that Monroe does something similar in her writing? Yeah, I think that's pretty undeniable. But before I get to that specifically, I want to mention one thing that's clearly present in Monroe's stories, and that's the element of surprise, which of course is another aspect of her realism. I mean, her stories are full of characters expecting one thing and then walking into something completely different and unexpected. Often it's sex or love. I mean, people are struck by sex or love, which sweeps their life away. And what's more, people themselves often don't behave predictably in her stories. And not only this, but sometimes we just can't make sense of why some of her characters do what they do. Like, for example, there may be no accounting for why one character loves another. In this sense, opaqueness and ambiguous feelings abound. But maybe most importantly, as you alluded to, Monroe's stories are not fairy tales with a final positive ending. Rather, the majority of her stories leave an open, often inconclusive ending. They are stories that refuse closure. You see, for Monroe, human life is definitely no science. And it's not something that you can neatly package up with a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you know what? I think she's so right about this. I mean, closure downplays or belittles the complexity of our lives, no? It seems to me that the reality of our lives is often marked by confusion, dead ends, and uncertain futures. It's not often that we pull out order from chaos. 
We just don't know how the future will turn out. So why do we want and expect stories with neat, tidy endings, which means knowing the future? Well, I suppose I answered my question, really. We want this because we want our stories to reflect our own dreams and goals, our aspirations for order and finality. But at the end of the day, the fact is, the books with happy determinate endings are not books that we return to. We forget about them a few days later and never pick them up again. They're a trifle we enjoy and exhaust. They're discardable and forgettable. But here's the thing. We don't do this with books that leave us without a clear end, ones marked by ambiguity. We just can't shake off those types of stories. They haunt us. They weigh on us. But eventually, they also beckon to us. And I think they do this because there's a part of us that understands that the formulaic narrative is disingenuous, that it's not an authentic representation of the human condition. Our life just isn't a neat, tight knot, leaving no threads hanging out. In other words, we return to the inconclusive story and we respond to its ambiguity because, well, deep down, there's a part of us that wants this open-endedness in our own life. We want to participate and we want to create a life in the face of its lack of assurance. We want the open sea despite the lack of markers and the discomfort associated with it. We see the value of the scattered threads just as much as the seemly knot we try to tie. You know, I think the French existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre might be sort of instructive here. You see, for him, it's disingenuous to think that we have written our own completed story before our death. And that's because so long as we are alive, there's always a possibility to change things up, to head off in new directions. You see, for Sartre, we are pure freedom, and it's only death that limits this freedom. So to live as if we have solidified our essence or our narrative is, well, a form of self-deception. It's to turn a blind eye to the radical indeterminacy that lies at the heart of the human condition. In other words, so long as we're alive... There's an open-endedness to our life. Ultimately, life is a project, and there's no end to it until life puts an end to us. I don't know. Monroe's inconclusive endings remind me a bit of this, and I think it's partly why her stories beckon to us long after we put them down. It's because she reminds us that it's not a story that we live, but life.
listening to The Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Here's a clue. Aujourd'hui, maman est morte.